Good morning, Grace family. Uh, as Kenny already mentioned, my name is Junior Jamrianvit. Occasionally I get asked to preach, and I get that wonderful privilege this morning. And uh, for biology students coming back, uh, welcome, uh, and kudos to you. First service on time? Man, amazing. Yes. Yes. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for another day of life, which you promised to no one. We take this today, and we want to hear from your word. Do with us what you will with it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when I was an undergraduate at Biola, I think this is a fitting intro, considering the crowd, I was taking this class, Theology One, by a guy named Eric Tanis. Maybe you've heard of him. He's known to preacher occasionally. Um, so spoiler alert if you haven't taken the class, but this one particular class, he was showing a clip uh, of the Oprah Winfrey show. And he prefaced the clip by saying how influential Oprah Winfrey is, and I had no idea. Her show is booked out for years on end. It's almost impossible to get in. If she recommends a book, it's sold out instantly for months on end. I mean, her net worth is approximately $2 billion. I mean, I had no idea. This is like Oprah. I mean, she's uh, basically an icon. So there's a lot of eyes on this show. She's very influential. And this particular show was about religion and God. And I don't even remember the guest's name or who she was or what her title was or why she was even asked to be there. But I do remember her describing Jesus as a spoke on a wheel, one of many spokes on a wheel. The wheel in the middle being God, and Jesus is simply just one of many ways to get to God. And in our Western society, I've noticed that that's a pretty uh, prominent idea in our culture. We believe, at least the world does, that there are many ways to Christ. And not only is there, or excuse me, many ways to God, and not only is there many ways to God, but you, the individual, gets to determine that path. And we certainly like our choices and options. It's amazing how this is so ingrained in our society. Religious pluralism rules the day. And I even remember before I was a Christian, I totally bought into this idea. It made sense to me as a non-believer. I mean, who am I? to dictate to other people how they relate to God. Hey, I'll relate to God how I want to. You relate to God how you want to. Hey, kumbaya, peaches and cream. It's all good. It, sa- it sounds pretty, pretty good. It makes sense to me. But then I became a Christian. I started reading my Bible. Then I started saying, what? I don't know where that idea came from, but it didn't come from the Bible. And you would think people who want to know God would go to his word and see what he says about himself. But the problem is, when Christianity teaches there's only one way to God, there's only one way to heaven, well now, that's narrow-minded. And it's used as a pejorative, has a negative connotation. People think, you couldn't possibly think that. That's so dated and backward and whatever other pejorative that they may have for us, it's viewed as morally reprehensible because we're excluding other people's beliefs. But in our passage today, Jesus is very clear that many people will try to enter the kingdom of God but will not 
be able to. And people may believe that casually knowing Jesus is enough to enter the kingdom of God, that being a mere acquaintance of Jesus will give us access to true knowledge of God. No, that is not enough. We must know Jesus deeply and intimately and be known by him. And that's not as easy as it sounds. It takes effort. But it's worth it because eternity hangs in the balance. Jesus is clear. It's going to take exertion. It's going to be a fight. And that fight is going to cause lots of agonies. But Jesus doesn't shy away from speaking hard truth because true evangelism is not ambiguous. It is clear. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Our passage today is Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. Let us read, starting in verse 22. When he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And in that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from the north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. And here, back up to the beginning in verse 22, we see Jesus traveling through the villages, teaching and, and on his way to Jerusalem. In this particular portion of Luke, anytime you see Jerusalem, we're headed towards an end. And it's, Jesus talked about this back in chapter 9, verse 22, that his explicit stated purpose, where he says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And this must happen in Jerusalem. So as we're listening to each narrative unit week in and week out, we're headed towards this culmination in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And here in our passage, on his way there, somebody asks him a question back in verse 23. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now the passage doesn't say who this person was. It doesn't say what his title was or what his influence was. It just happened to ask the question. Regardless, it could be there was this widely held Jewish belief taught by rabbis that Israelites, because they're descendants of Abraham, would enter the kingdom of God based on their nationality. Now, maybe this person was asking the question to maybe to get Jesus to affirm this idea. Or it could be a regular follower of, of Christ just wanting to ask, hey, where is this all going to end? What's the end result of your ministry? How many people are going to be saved? 
Either way, Jesus doesn't answer the question directly. And according to Jesus, the line of demarcation between believer and non-believer and the save and the unsave is not nationalistic, but distinctly spiritual. He doesn't give a number, but he uses the question as an opportunity to teach the group. So he doesn't in address the individual, but he turns and says to them, and them being as whoever's gathered with them at this time. So in verse 24, and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, I feel like I need to lay some groundwork before we really get into the text. And I want to start by saying what this passage is not teaching. This is not teaching works-based salvation. This is not trying to earn your way into heaven or gaining God's approval through merit or trying to get through the narrow door by our own determination. No, we're not saved by our own effort or strength of will. The gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith, and that faith is not even of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And the gospel is God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life in obedience, dying on the cross, being buried for three days, resurrected, and now appeasing the wrath of God. And the only way we could receive that forgiveness is by asking for forgiveness, placing our faith in that finished work of Christ, repenting of our sins, committing our lives in love and service to him. Then the Lord would look on us as pure and as holy as his son Jesus because we've been impugned his righteousness. And because of this alien righteousness, we are reconciled to God and we're no longer aliens and strangers, but we are of God's household. And that's the gospel. So let me bring up two categories right now, two categories. Security and assurance. Security and assurance. Now, a lot of preachers and teachers that you've heard may use these terms synonymously, and there is quite a bit of overlap. But for today, I want to focus on their distinction. So first, security is objective. Security is objective. So the Bible teaches eternal security. That is, it teaches that if you've placed your faith in Jesus and you have union with him, that union is forever. Another way to say it, if you're a truly regenerate child of God, you cannot cease to be a child of God. And if you are a child of God, the Lord will work perseverance in you. For I'm sure of this, that he who begun a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. In him you also, having also listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1.13 and 14. And the purpose of a seal is that it cannot be broken. In 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, because God is faithful, by whom we were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So our security is dependent on not our faithfulness, but the faithfulness of God. 
It's dependent upon the finished work of Christ. And when Christ said is finished, he didn't add a footnote and said, hey, you got to take it the rest of the way. No. And if salvation is not dependent upon our personal merit, then keeping our salvation would not be dependent upon our personal merit. And look, we should be extremely grateful for that. We should be extremely grateful for that. Because if there was a way I could lose my salvation, I guarantee you I would find it. Okay, my wickedness and depravity knows no bounds. And I'm grateful that I'm sealed in him. So losing our salvation doesn't make theological sense, doesn't make exegetical sense, doesn't even make logical sense. If you could lose eternal life, it wouldn't be eternal now, would it? Yeah, you know, I had eternal life for a couple weeks. Doesn't work. So now we move to assurance. Assurance. Now assurance is subjective. Subjective. Meaning, well, how confident are we that we're truly saved? And that's going to vary from person to person. Later in the passage, we're going to see that there are going to be plenty of people who are confident that they were in, but they didn't get in. So it's not the mere fact that you're confident that gets you in. So how do you know you're truly saved? So a sub-point to assurance is first individual assurance. Individual assurance. So we have the objective reality of the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now we have the subjective reality of our faith expressed in our sanctification. And sanctification is our internal condition. It's a moral change that happens at conversion. We become different people because we're new creatures in Christ. So we're no longer ruled by sin. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 1 John 3, 9. So sanctification is progressive, and it happens throughout our lifetime, and it's completed at death. You know, one of my classmates in Romans class, I love how he described it. I kept it ever since. Uh, he described sanctification is the working out of our justified position. Meaning, once we're justified and placed our faith in Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ. But are we as righteous as Christ, practically speaking? No, we're still sinful. But as we grow, we're reflecting that redeemed position more and more. So then the question is, are we growing in the image of Christ? Are we manifesting the fruits of the Spirit? Are we growing in our affections for God? Because the difference between believer and non-believer is primarily our affections for God, our love for God, our desire to be obedient to God, and the difference between people who believe to simply avoid hell and harm and those who believe because they want to see the glory of Christ. And they see that Christ is more beautiful and desirable than anything else in this world. And the more affections that we grow towards Christ, the more we're shaped by his character. And the more we're shaped by his character, the more we are assured that we're one of his children. And the more obedient we are to God, the more assurance we have that we're truly saved. And the more confidence we have in God, the more confidence we can have that we are in his possession. And God wants to give us this assurance. In Hebrews 10, it says, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So another subcategory, we have individual assurance, but we also have communal assurance. Communal assurance. And that is the body of Christ, the church, other believers, helps confirms our priesthood. And if you're a confessing, a professing believer and you're not part of the local church, you are sinning. You need to be a part of the local church. In Hebrews 10 again, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day draw near. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. So when you spend time in fellowship and you start building relationships, people are going to recognize, hey, this person is manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. Hey, this person has godly desires. Hey, this person treats their spouse and children in a certain way. It's communal affirmation. And that doesn't mean we get it perfectly every time. I've been fooled. But generally speaking, I think we get it right. I think we get it right most of the time. And because assurance is subjective in nature, there's going to be people who struggle and waver in their faith. And that's part of it. That's okay. And if you're struggling and wavering in your faith, if you're struggling with sin, the church is so much more essential because we're here to uplift one another, encourage one another, be a part of a family. And if you are struggling with this sin and you're battling, the fact that you're still battling shows the Spirit is working in your life. You're not just giving over to it. Hey, I'm struggling with this. I'm just going to make it a part of my life and I'm at peace with it. No, the fact that you're still fighting, the fact that you still come here shows the Spirit working in your life. There's this conviction and that's evidence. So keep battling. And when there's professing believers who live in a manner that's not honoring to Christ, well, we speak the truth in love. We keep each other accountable. And that's communal assurance. So I want to be clear. This passage is not talking about getting into heaven mainly by our security. It is, however, talking about assurance and how confident we are that we're truly saved. So back to the original question. Hey, will only a few be saved? So Jesus doesn't give a number, but regardless of the number, he says, make sure you are one of them. And back to verse 24, strive to enter the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. The key word here is the word strive, which means to make every effort. It's this Greek word, agonizomai, which means to agonize. Well, we get our English word agony. It means engaging in an athletic competition. Here are a few other passages that use that same word. Here, our mission statement at our church. We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, also I labor agonizomai, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Here in 1 Timothy 6.12, agonizomai, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
in here, 1 Corinthians 9.25, every athlete agonizomai exercises self-control. The NIV translates it strict training. But they do it for a perishable reef, but we an imperishable reef. So it's speaking largely of an athletic competition. Now, speaking of athletic competition, you know, basketball has been such a big part of my life for so long, my life, for so many reasons. Um, and I actually still talk to one of my high school basketball coaches, Rick Ronquillo, who happened to also be my youth pastor. I don't know how many times I've called back and apologized to him. Oh, my goodness, you know. If you're a youth pastor out there, there's hope. There's hope. Um, but we would, we would talk. We would say he was very influential in leading me to Christ. And I noticed, I remember I was 38, and I just felt great. Man, I was still killing it, man. These young guys ain't got nothing on me. But then I hit 40, and I just noticed things just started getting harder. You know, it got downright painful. And my soreness would last for days on end. I wouldn't recover quite as quickly. I wouldn't heal as quickly. Jumping and running just, just was like jumping on knives. And I started getting emotionally distraught over this. I was actually genuinely distra distraught. I called Rick, and I said, Rick, tell me, when did you stop playing basketball and why? And he said, yeah, well, once I got in my 40s, it just got too painful. I was like, oh, well, that's a coincidence. <laughs> coincidence. But I do remember every time I talked to Rick, I think about my high school career, and I was a terrible basketball player in high school. And I would talk to him. I was like, hey, remember that when I was in high school and I, I get put in the game, and I was so nervous and making a mistake. I ended up making a bunch of mistakes. I get yanked right back out of the game. And, you know, we laugh about that. But I do remember, I don't remember exactly when, but there was a tipping point when I said, I want to get good at this. And there was this laser focus that I had. I said, all right, this is it. I'm going to put my life into this. And then through hours of hours of training, going hard every day at practice, staying late, lifting weights, drill after drill after drill, I remember we had open Tuesday night runs, and uh, that was just get the guys getting together and just playing. There was guys on the team, alumni. We just play all night. And I remember asking the assistant coach, Kurt, can I stay? He's like, sure, just make sure the door's locked on your way out. Remember, the lights were off, and I was there shooting jump shots, and there was just enough light to see the rim. It was me in an empty, dark gym shooting jump shots. Me and a family of raccoons just shooting jump shots. I remember walking out of the gym in pitch darkness, not even knowing what time it was. And through this 10,000 hours of blood, sweat, tears, and agony, putting myself to the brink every day, feeling like my body was on fire constantly, something happened. The game started slowing down. And I started to see plays develop three or four frames ahead. I started growing confident. The fear I had was gone. I wanted the ball in my hands in the biggest moments in the biggest games. And I started enjoying this game in ways I didn't even think possible. Well, what do you mean by that, Junior? What do you mean by that? Well, I'll give you an example. It was a tournament in Pasadena. And one of my things I used to do is I try to 
chum-ups with the ref before uh, the game, try to get calls during the game, get friendly with them. It, it almost never worked. But I did it. I did it anyway. In this particular game, one of the refs is just stoic, man, just like the Terminator. Man. He just looked angry. It didn't even look like he wanted to be there. Um, so I was like, all right, the game's going on. We're playing the game. And finally, I looked at him. I was like, you know what? I'm going to make him smile before this game is over. It so happened I was working on this post move for a while, and I told my teammates, hey, hit me in the post. I catch the ball in the corner, and I do this Akeem Olajuwon spin move, lay it up and in before the center had time to rotate over to help. And I, in all one fluid motion, I ran up the sideline where the ref was, and I'm backpedaling on defense, and I look at him. I say, come on, man. You know you like that spin move. <laughs> and he cracked a smile. And I was like, yeah, that's a win. That's the game within the game. If you would have told me in high school I would have enjoyed this game at that level, I would have been, no, that's, that's, that's nuts. And if it seems like I'm reliving my glory days, well, yeah, yeah, I kind of am. So, <laughs> so, so thank you for indulging me for a few minutes. I've officially entered the Al Bundy stage of my life. You know. <laughs> and if you grew up in a Christian home and you don't know who Al Bundy is, God bless you. God bless you. But see, the point being, in that same way, that same laser-focused determination, we pick up our cross daily. We read our Bibles daily. We pray in the Spirit. We love our spouses. We love our neighbors. We don't neglect the gathering of the saints. It's blood, sweat, and tears, and agony. But it's training ourselves up in righteousness and godliness, and that takes exertion. There's going to be days you're not going to feel like reading your Bible. There's going to be days you don't feel like loving your spouse. It takes exertion to get your family ready every single week and coming to church every single week. It takes exertion to build relationships in a way that's meaningful, getting into each other's lives. It takes exertion once we're offended that we work through conflict and forgive one another. That takes agony. And there's a cost. But it's training yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come, 1 Timothy 4.8. And when we train for godliness, we begin to see the beauty and the majesty of Christ more acutely and plainly. And we begin to enjoy life in ways we didn't think possible. Your relationships are better. You know, my sister isn't even a Christian. But once I became a Christian, our relationship just got better because I wanted to love her in a way I couldn't love before. Your relationships become better. Your perspective becomes clearer. Your purpose is more distinct. And here, the striving into this narrow door, this adjective, narrow, describing the door, well, clearly, this isn't some grand adorned gateway with easy access. No, it's difficult to enter and it's difficult to get through into the world. That is less inviting. And it's less inviting because it requires strength and struggle. Of course, if given the choice, people would rather have an easier, more inclusive way requiring very little sacrifice, if any, at all. And that's why the world latches on to this idea, oh, there are many ways of God. Not only are there many ways of God, you get to determine that path. You chart your own course, which is one of the greatest lies from the pit of hell. And contrast that idea that there are many ways of God with what Matthew says. And he says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide 
and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. So yeah, it's, it's difficult to follow Jesus. It's, it takes striving and fighting, and there's competition involved. Competition. Now when you hear competition, don't mistake in it that we're competing against other people. We're not competing against other people. We're competing against ourselves. And Luke 9, 23, 24, Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So let him deny himself. Die every day. Because the gift of eternal life is far greater. So if you lose your life, you gain it. If you try to preserve and save your life, you actually lose it. This is talking about legitimate repentance. And legitimate repentance always involves self-denial. There's Diedrich Bonhoeffer who says the gospel invitation is the invitation to come and die. Come and die. And maybe you've heard the gospel shared in such a way where Jesus died on the cross so that you don't have to. And in one sense, that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Jesus died on the cross, took on the wrath of God, and if we place our faith in him, we won't experience the wrath of God. That is true. But there's another element to that. Jesus died on the cross so that we could die with him. So that we die with him and we die with him by fighting our pride our self-righteousness our self-will our love of sin worldly desires and aspirations we deny ourselves our status anything we love more than christ anything we find our identity outside of christ we wrestle it to the ground we make choke it out make it tap in submission and crucify it on the cross because what matters to God is not a person's popularity, prestige, status, notoriety, talent, abilities, wealth, heritage, power, accomplishments, or achievements. What matters to God is what you do with his son, Jesus Christ. Are you committed to living and giving your life to Jesus Christ? And that gospel invitation is limited. It's finite. It's not forever. In verse 25, one, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. So once the door is shut, it's too late. The door shutting is a signal that time is over. There's not going to be a second breakfast. And for some people, the door shuts at death. Or because of the hardness of one's heart. It could be procrastination or outright refusal to give their lives to Jesus. Don't presume that the grace of God will last forever because it won't. And if you've been with us this past month, a month ago, Jackson preached on Luke 12, being dressed to be ready for when the master returns because there's a day when the master will return. There's a time element involved there. The week after that, Fred Sanders talked about, hey, settle your matters before you get to court because once you get to court, hey, it might be game over. There's a time element to it. 
The week after that, Kenny preached on the fig tree that didn't bear fruit in the vineyard. They were just about to ax it. Hey, wait, just give it a little longer. We'll put some manure in it. But then if there is no fruit, then yes, we chop it down. There's a time element to it. Do you see this thread through this section of the Gospel of Luke? You know, I told my wife, hey, you know, at my eulogy, I have Eric Thomas do my, my eulogy, or at my funeral, I have Eric Thomas do my eulogy, have Kenny do worship. That would be great. And she looked at me, and she's like, when do you plan on dying? <laughs> I was like, I don't know. The point is, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, my cholesterol is high, and that last piece of bacon might be it. But the point is, I don't know. What, just because they're older, that, that, that means uh, I'm going to outlive them? No, there's no guarantee of that. I just want to be ready. I want to be prepared. And even last week when Rob preached on Jesus healing the crippled woman in the synagogue on the Sabbath, he talked about the kingdom working well before she was healed. In 18 years, this lady was crippled, but she was faithful. And Jesus doesn't heal people that don't have faith. And through those first 18 years, you know what she was doing? She was striving to enter the narrow door. She had faith and showed faithfulness under remarkable circumstances, dealing with this disability. And then when the ruler of the synagogue gets angry, Jesus says, you're missing it, man. You're so missing it. You're going to be left outside once this door is shut. Back to verse 25, once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Some of your Bibles translate workers of iniquity. See, these people believed that they knew Jesus, but they didn't. And Jesus says, I don't know where you come from. And that's less about geographical origin, but more about their spiritual roots. Their spiritual state is identified as workers of evil, workers of iniquity. It's a direct contrast with the gospel invitation to repent, to deny yourself. It's renouncing your life of sin and, and evil. So yes, Jesus taught in their streets and he ate with them, but they refused to repent of their sins. So true conversion involves true repentance and turning away of that sin. And we talked about assurances and the different ways we're assured in our faith, but there's also false assurance. And there are things that people, that give people a false sense of eternal security. Merely acknowledging that you want to get in doesn't get you in. Or having this comfortable affiliation with Jesus is not enough. Oh yeah, you know, I go to church twice a year, Christmas and Easter. It doesn't actually scream that Jesus is the Lord of your life. Other types of false insurances, well, you know, I'll just say it. Altar calls, sinner prayers, spontaneous baptisms. There are churches that do something called altar calls where after the service, they ask the person to come up to the altar. There's this scripted prayer. You say this prayer, boom, hey, you're a Christian. But if that person leaves and does not repent of their sins, they're still dead in their trespasses. And that's a false sense of security. Do you know why we don't do that here? 
We always say, hey, come talk to the preacher, me or whoever's preaching. And then there's prayer teams afterwards that want to talk to you because we want to have a conversation with you. We want to get to know you. It's not a scripted prayer that saves you. We want to make sure you understand the gospel. What is the gospel? What does it mean? Not only are there false assurances, but there's also false gospels. What's the gospel we're presenting? What's the gospel you've heard? What is the gospel saving you from? Is it saving you from unfulfillment, dissatisfaction? From poverty to prosperity? Inadequate feelings? A purposeless living? The gospel isn't Jesus came down, sacrificed to make the best version of you. It's not the gospel. No, it's primarily a battle for our soul. And the battle is being broken and contrite over our sin and sinful state. Oh, our life issues become better. We start flourishing as human beings when we give our lives in obedience to Christ, but that's a byproduct of saving faith. That's a byproduct of true repentance. In a world that continues to cater to the false gospel of the therapeutic self and ask less and less from people who want to dictate their own reality. As gospel proclaimers, we cannot give in to that temptation. The gospel calls to give everything to the truth of whom Christ is presented in the scriptures, presented in God's word. And if you truly want to give people purpose and clarity for their life, you don't ask for less. You ask for more. And the gospel asks nothing short of our very lives. It was someone who said, what you win people with is what you win people to. What you win people with is what you win them to. So if you win people to a diluted, watered-down, self-help gospel, well, that's the gospel that they receive, and that's the gospel you're going to need to keep them with. And that's the broad way leading to destruction. And here in verses 28 through 30, we see Christ contrasting the eternal destiny of those who fail to enter the narrow door and those who get through it. It's a contrast between believers and non-believers in verse 28. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. There will be people cast out. There will be people left outside in despair. And this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's the exact opposite of finding joy in the presence of God's kingdom. It's a metaphor for a literal reality of eternal torment and punishment. The weeping means that you're in a place that's inconsolable. That there's eternal hopelessness. And this gnashing of teeth is this unmitigated rage that goes on forever. And why that happens is, is right here in the passage, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom, well, that shows that people outside could see inside, and they realize they've been left out. That's what causes this rage. Hell is about remorse and regret forever. And this will happen to everyone who doesn't receive Christ as Lord, and it's a tragedy. If you're a Christian, this should fire us up to go out and evangelize, to share with our neighbors, 
is not give up, to continue to pray for people we know that are not saved. Because this is the destiny of those who do not receive Jesus. And also, it doesn't matter if you're descendants of Abraham, or to put it in today's context, it doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. It doesn't matter that you're adjacent to the church. It doesn't matter if you go to Christian school. No, John the Baptist says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Luke 3.8. And here in verse 29, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. Oh, this is such a beautiful picture of the eschatological banquet with all the patriarchs and the prophets at the end of the age, joined not only by Israelites, but from people from all points of the world. And Isaiah had prophesied this long ago, for fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. And in verse 30, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. See, the first people who received the word of God and the promise of the Messiah were the Jews. The last people who received it were the Gentiles. And this inclusion of the Gentiles, of everybody else in the kingdom of God, was kept hidden until now. And the Apostle Paul says this, The mystery of Christ, which in other generations has not been made known to the sons of men, and has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. Ephesians 3, 4 through 7. So then, returning to the original question. Verse 23, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Jesus answers with verse 29. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Oh, that sounds wonderful. God gathering his people from everywhere, assembling all the nations united in worship of him, the Lord of lords and the king of kings. This is a mere glimpse of things to come. The Apostle John says at the end of the age, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands 
and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne who worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. And if you haven't given your life to Christ, well, today is that day. Because Jesus is that door. For I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. For the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I came that you may have life and life more abundantly. John 10, verse 9 and 10. So don't wait any longer. Time will run out. Be a part of the multitude that will celebrate the everlasting king. And if you're a Christian, make sure to enter through the narrow door, striving by faith, dying daily so we can rest assured we're truly his. And let's pray. Father God, thank you for your goodness. And we pray and how wonderful you decide that we could be a part of gathering your people into your kingdom. Give us boldness, give us clarity, give us conviction to go out and, and reach the lost and to live our lives in a manner that we are assured we are your children. In Jesus' name.